Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Kim Kessler, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. I'm out of town at a writing retreat and not in my regular recording setup, so my sound quality may leave a little to be desired. But my four fellow roundtablers, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Leslie Watts, will sound fabulous as usual. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. Then we team up to test the idea. We take a look at it from all angles to give authors a deep insight into story structure. This week, Jari pitched Fargo as a great example of set and setting driving the dialogue. This 1996 film was directed by Joel Cohen from a screenplay written by the Cohen brothers. To orient us to the story, Jari will kick us off with the genre and a quick one-sentence summary each of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. Thanks, Kim. For me, this is an external genre of crime caper, and I know we'll talk a little bit later about that. Uh, I know Leslie's got some opinions on that, but uh, for the beginning hook, when Jerry can't pay back a shady GMAC loan, he must hire Gare and Carl to kidnap his wife for a ransom. But during their getaway, a state trooper pulls them over and things go horribly wrong, ending with the trooper getting killed as well as witnesses that were driving by. The middle build. When Braird police discover the murdered trooper and witnesses, Chief Margie starts an investigation that turns up the heat on Jerry, who is getting desperate for the money to pay off the shady GMAC loan. Wade does not trust Carl with the ransom, so he delivers it to Carl, and they get into a gunfight when Carl shoots Wade dead. Ending payoff. When Jerry shows up at the garage, he finds Wade dead and puts him in the trunk of his car. When Margie swings by Jerry's dealership, he flees. When Carl comes back to give Gare his money, Gare attacks Carl, and as Margie drives by, she sees the car and comes upon Gare feeding Carl into a wood chipper. The police catch up with Jerry and Bismarck and arrest him. To which we all say, hooray. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard a sound as simultaneously disturbing and pleasing as Jerry's wailing sobs when he's caught and handcuffed in the hotel. I was just so happy to see it. Justice is served. Thanks, Jerry. Since I'm on host duty this week, I dug into some fun facts about the film. I was fascinated by that opening text that says this is a true story. It says, the events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. And then they leave it on the screen for a really long time, and you can't help but read it and really take it in. But it turns out that it's not true. The Coen brothers said, we wanted to make a movie just in the genre of a true story movie. You don't have to have a true story to make a true story movie. Even so, Fargo did take inspiration from two real-life events. One is a General Motors Finance Corporation employee who committed fraud by playing around with serial numbers, as we see Jerry Lundegaard, which is played by William H. Macy, do in the film. The other was the murder of Helen Crafts, a Connecticut woman whose husband killed her and disposed of her body by putting it through a wood chipper. But the Coen brothers say beyond that, the story is made up. 
So my next question was, why is it called Fargo if it takes place in Minnesota? There are all kinds of fun theories on Reddit and beyond, but this one is the best that I found. Uh, it was written back in 2014 by a screen named Zorro Means Fox. Zorro Means Fox says, the title serves as a metaphor for the central character going to a different, unknown, life-changing place. In the case of Fargo, it's the place that Jerry goes to in the first scene of the story to seal the deal along with his fate regarding the staged kidnapping of his wife. So simply, Fargo means a place outside your normal existence that, once visited, alters your life forever. I just thought that was fantastic. So it's like Fargo, go far. Yes. Right? And he said, everything (laughs) goes too far, right? Everything that happens goes too far in the scene. And yeah, it was a great metaphor. And I thought it was just a fun play on words too, which we all love. So now that we've got all that fun trivia stuff sorted out, let's hear from Jari about his study on how set and setting are driving dialogue in Fargo. Thanks, Kim. Before I dig into Fargo, let's quickly review how we have been evaluating dialogue. Recall that in the episode on the Shawshank Redemption, we talked about functions and tasks of dialogue, which gave us a way to evaluate what the dialogue is doing for us in a story. So recall the functions are being exposition, characterization, and action, and then the six tasks being expressing an interaction, an action-reaction that intensifies and builds to a turning point, conveys exposition, a unique verbal style for the character, captivates the reader and the audience, and is authentic to the character and setting. Many of these functions and tasks are present in the dialogue that we saw in the Shawshank Redemption. While the functions and tasks are a good way to look at the dialogue in a story, it's not the full picture. McKee had another way that I feel is a better way to look at the dialogue and aligns nicely with the story grid method. It's called the five stages of talk. McKee's five stages of talk, it's on page 189 in his book, Dialogue, takes the functions and tasks and gives them a complete way to look at how dialogue is working in the beats slash scenes of a story. This is particularly relevant in Fargo, where the set and setting has a big impact on the dialogue and these stages of talk. So McKee's five stages of talk are desire, what the character wants to achieve in a scene. Mostly it's to get back to the life balance that has been disrupted from the status quo. Then the second one is the sense of antagonism. What is preventing the character from getting back to balance? The third is the choice of action, the action he wants to take to get to the desired scene intention or back to life balance. The fourth is the action reaction. This is the actual action he takes, be it physical or verbal, and the reaction that that might occur. Uh, Desire is the source of action, right? And action is the source of dialogue. So we have to have that kind of desire inside us in order to talk or do something. And then the fifth one is the expression. The verbal action is dialogue coupled with any physical action that might also express the actions of the character. This is the narration of expression, the physical act like screaming, stepping forward, clenching a fist, etc. The last stage, expression, incorporates both dialogue and narrative since the only way to express character action is for them to either talk or act or both. This is also the place where where what what is said and how it's said, the character's voice, comes into play. So I'm going to apply these stages of talk or dialogue to a few scenes slash beats in Fargo. But before I do that, let's take a look at the set and setting of Fargo. First, I'll take the setting. Fargo is set in North Dakota and Minnesota, 
in the winter of 1987. There are three towns slash cities that the majority of the action takes place, Fargo, Brainerd, and Minneapolis. As for the mindset, all of the characters come from this part of the country, which has a particular type of accent and attitude called Minnesota nice, which is close to the sound of the Nords and the Swedes with head nodding to show agreement, and the attitude characterized by the stereotypical behavior of people born and raised in Minnesota to be courteous, reserved, and mild-mannered. Okay, so now that we know where we're at and what to expect, courteous, reserved, and mild-mannered people who nod their head in agreement, all while trying to stay warm in the frigid cold. You betcha. Let's take a look at some of the dialogue and apply McKee's five stages of talk to it. So the first scene we're going to look at is Gare and Carl get pulled over in Brainerd by a state trooper. And remember, Gare and Carl are the two people that are hired to kidnap Jerry's wife. How can I help you, officer? This a new car then, sir? Oh, it certainly is, officer. Still got that smell. You're required to display temporary tags, either in the plate area or taped to the inside of the back window. Certainly. Can I see your license and registration, please? Certainly. Yeah, I was uh, going to tape up those, uh, the tag, you know, to be in full compliance, but uh, must have uh, must have slipped my mind. So maybe the best thing to do would be to take care of that right here in Brainerd. What's this, sir? My license and registration. Yeah, I want to be in compliance. I was just thinking we could take care of it right here in Brainerd. Put that back in your pocket, please. And step out of the car, please, sir. So let's look at the five stages from Carl's point of view. So the desire, Carl wants to get rid of the trooper so he does not have to find Gene who's in the back of the car. The sense of antagonism is clearly the trooper. The choice of action, Carl tries to talk his way out of the trooper sniffing around by hinting at a bribe. So what's the action reaction? Carl presents his wallet with his ID and there's a $50 bill sticking out. The trooper senses the bribe and asks Carl to put that back in your wallet and get out of the car. And then finally, the expression Carl looks at Gare, wonders what to do, and then Gare smashes the cop against the car and shoots him dead. Carl in shock says, Whoa, whoa, daddy. That beat within this tense scene both shows and tells the mindset of the characters and the setting they are in drive both what they say and how they say it. Hey, Jari, I'm curious about how you choose the examples from the film. Can you say a little about that? Yeah, sure, Leslie. Uh, For this movie, I wanted to pick scenes or beats that would be easy to see through the five stages of talk. I also looked at major progressive complication or places that had some good exposition, especially from new characters, like the Margie scene we'll talk about in a second. I also wanted scenes that were not too long because just listening to them is kind of boring. So I wanted to get something, you know, typically below a minute. Probably the best character in the whole movie is Margie who is the chief of police for Brainerd, who at 3559 in the movie has a wonderful scene as she arrives on the crime scene. 
I won't go through the whole scene since it's too long, but one part reveals some exposition in, I think, a clever way. And I tell you what, from his footprint, he looks like a big fella. You see something down there, Chief? No, I just think I'm gonna barf. Jeez. You okay, Margie? Yeah, I'm fine. It's just morning sickness. Well, that passed. Yeah? Yeah, now I'm hungry again. Let's look at the five stages from Margie's point of view. The desire, clearly Margie wants to figure out who killed these people. There's three dead bodies on this road. The sense of antagonism is clearly the killers or trying to figure out who the killers are. The choice of action, he's, she's talking it through with Lou. You can kind of see in her voice and how the uh, relationship between them work. Uh, the action and reaction in this particular scene, she pauses and doubles over. And then Lou asks what's wrong. And then the expression is she tells him she's going to throw up because she has morning sickness. So throughout the first part of this, we get the sense that she's pregnant, but now she reveals that she's pregnant. And that you know last bit of exposition confirming that Margie is pregnant, I think is cleverly revealed in the scene, both through narrative and dialogue, where you're a little bit misdirected, then you think that the really that the dead bodies are getting to her, but it's really not. Valerie actually pointed this out before the car. Margie can look at two dead bodies, but morning sickness can still get to her. So that's going to show the kind of person that she is. There are other scenes that are great examples as well of this set and setting driving dialogue. And one that's a pretty long that we won't get into is Officer Olson, who's talking to Mr. Mora at an hour 14 in the movie. How are you doing? Mr. Mora? Yeah. Officer Olson? Yeah, righto. Well... Oh, I'm tending bar down there at Eklund and Swedlund's last Tuesday, and this little guy's drinking, and he says, where can a guy find some action? I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, what kind of action? And he says, woman action. What do I look like? And I says, well, what do I look like? I don't arrange that kind of thing. And he says, but I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, yeah, but this ain't that kind of place. Uh-huh. He says, oh, so I get it. So you think I'm some kind of jerk for asking, only you don't use the word jerk. I understand. Then he calls me a jerk, says last guy thought he's a jerk is dead now. So I don't say nothing. He says, what do you think about that? And I says, well, that don't sound like too good a deal for him then. <laughs> You got that right. Yeah, he says, yeah, that guy's dead, and I don't mean of old age. And then he says, geez, I'm going crazy out there at the lake. White Bear Lake? Yeah, well, at Eklund and Swedland, that's closer to Moose Lake, so I made that assumption. Oh, sure. Anyway, he's drinking at the bar, so I don't think a whole great deal of it. But then Mrs. Mora, she heard about the homicides down here and thought I should call it in, so I called it in. End of story. The whole exchange is this perfect set and setting for the Minnesota nice because it's appropriate to the set and setting of the movie. So that's sort of my take on why I think this is a great movie to study for not only dialogue, but how set and setting drive that to make the characters not only authentic, but in some cases uh, drive the story forward. Awesome. Thanks, Jari. Now, I want to go on record and say that my good friend's husband is from that area of the country, and he made it very clear that the Coen brothers are greatly exaggerating the Minnesotan dialect and mannerisms. So just just take a note. This is dark comedy, not real life. And you're welcome, Kirk. I just wanted to add here that 
as I was watching this and realizing that this accent is greatly exaggerated, part of me said, wow, they're just really like l- exoticizing this local accent. Then I looked and realized that the Coen brothers are both from Minnesota. So that gives them a certain amount of permission to make fun of, you know, like their own people. But there's a little bit of danger in exaggerating accents like that, unless you actually are from somewhere and can say, this is my voice, this is my life. Perfect. I was thinking about the word appropriation while I was thinking about this. And so I think that's a really great point. We don't want to make caricatures, right, (laughs) of people. Okay, so now let's hand the baton over to Valerie. Thank you, Kim. Okay, so I'm going to change my approach a little bit this week. This season, I've been studying narrative drive. But as I was preparing for this episode, Neil Gaiman's masterclass was released. And he has an excellent lesson on dialogue and character. So since we're talking about dialogue this week, I thought it would be fun to apply his advice to Fargo and see how it plays out. Now, if you haven't discovered Masterclass yet, I highly recommend you check it out. It's at masterclass.com because this is a rare opportunity for us to hear professionals talking about their craft in a way that they don't in other types of interviews. It's writers talking to writers. You can get an annual subscription. Like, I mean, I have one. I'm completely addicted to Masterclass. (laughs) But if you just want to buy one course, may I suggest that you start with Neil Gaiman's. Okay. In his lesson on dialogue, he talks about dialogue both on a micro level and a macro level. That is, he gives advice for how to technically create dialogue, but he also talks about what dialogue is for. Now, interestingly... Dialogue comes up in just about every writing-related masterclass. I had time to review a few additional lessons from David Mamet, Aaron Sorkin, James Patterson, Judy Bloom, Margaret Atwood, and Shonda Rhimes. Not surprisingly, there are similarities in what each of these experts are saying about dialogue. And here are some of the common points. They all say that dialogue has rhythm. And Aaron Sorkin goes so far as to say it's like music. They all say that dialogue isn't real speech. So characters in the book, they're not real characters. They don't speak the way real people speak. They say that dialogue is directly tied to objects of desire. Now, they don't use the term objects of desire, but in story grid parlance, that is what they're talking about. And that dialogue moves the plot forward. And they also say that dialogue is character. So those first two points, dialogue has a rhythm and dialogue isn't real speech, they're kind of at the level of line editing or line writing. And I don't really have time to go into that here. But if it's something you feel you need to improve in your own writing, you can go into the masterclass lessons and study what those masters are are teaching. They all come with workbooks, all of the masterclasses. And I have to say, the writing exercises that Neil Gaiman teaches in his workbook are among the best I've seen. They really are. Okay, in a nutshell, here is what Neil Gaiman has to say about dialogue. People say, well, do you do do those sort of books and things before you start? Do you list off lots of things about your characters? And, And I say no. Mostly, what I do is try and figure out what they sound like, how they talk. Sometimes what they look like, but mostly how they talk. Because dialogue is character. The way that somebody talks, what they say, how they say it, is character. And dialogue has to 
show character. It also has to show plot, and maybe it can be funny along the way. And good dialogue is doing all three of those things at the same time. It's making you smile or making you see things you've never seen before. It's moving the story along. And more than anything, it's telling you things about the people who are saying it and who they're saying it to. So dialogue has to show character and it has to show plot. And plot, of course, is tied to objects of desire. So how does dialogue in Fargo accomplish these, these things? Let's start with uh, Marge. She's a smart, tough, pregnant cop and clearly the breadwinner of her family. We see her husband, Norm, is a painter. And when I say tough, I mean tough in the sense that she can handle the challenges her job throws at her. We see her look at dead bodies without flinching. But her job is not everything. In fact, it's secondary to her friends and family. At the crime scene, she thinks about her husband and wants to go buy night crawlers for him. When she walks into the station, she orders skin so soft from a colleague. And that colleague, presumably, is below her in the chain of command. And for anyone who, who knows what skin so soft is, it's an Avon product. So here we have a boss supporting an employee in the employee's side job. Now, why? It could simply be because this is a hobby for the employee, or it could be a necessary income stream. But either way, many bosses would not tolerate an employee using office time to develop their side hustle, but not Margie. At the end of the film, Margie even tells Gare that money isn't everything. Now, there's a huge difference between dialect and dialogue. Fargo clearly has a regional dialect happening, but that isn't what makes great dialogue. What it does is create authenticity and adds to an atmosphere of a story, even if it's exaggerated. It creates authenticity and adds to the atmosphere of a story. But dialect in and of itself doesn't reveal character, except, of course, revealing where that character came from. And it doesn't move plot forward. There is one scene where dialect and dialogue dovetail beautifully. It's when Margie and Norm are at the all-you-can-eat buffet. And in that scene, we understand from what Marge does not say, that as a woman, she is feeling undesirable. <laughs> and that happens to the best of us at seven months pregnant. <laughs> well, she has already decided to meet this guy, Mike, in Minnesota. And in this scene we get one of the very few examples of subtext in Fargo. If you watch it closely, and I'm not going to play the clip here because it's a scene that you've really got to watch. If you watch it closely and observe the body language between the husband and the wife, you'll notice Norm's reaction to Margie's statement that she'll drive into town. In this instance, his, yeah, is loaded. It is so well done well worth renting the movie and watching for, just that one scene. Now, there's also a beautifully crafted scene involving Jerry, Wade, and Stan that reveals the characters of all three men while also moving the plot forward. Here it is. All I know is you got a problem, you call a professional. No, they said no cops. They were darn clear on that, Wade. They said you call your cops and we're going to... Of course they're going to say that. It's my protection. They got Gene here. 
I give these sons of bitches a million dollars. Where's my guarantee they're gonna let her go? Well, they... A million dollars is a lot of damn money. Yeah, but think There this... they are. They got my daughter. Think this thing through here, Wade. You give them what they want. Why won't they let her go? You, you gotta listen to me on this one, Wade. You don't know. You're just whistling Dixie here. I'm saying the cops. They can advise us on this. I'm saying call a professional. No. No cops. That's final. This is my deal here, Wade. Yeah. Jean is my wife here. I gotta tell you, Wade, I'm leaning to Jerry's viewpoint here. Well. But we gotta protect Jean. These... We're not holding any cards here, Wade. They got them all. So they call the shots. You're darn tootin'. Uh, damn it. I'm telling you. Well, why, why don't we... Stan, I'm thinking we should offer him a half a million. Eh? Now come on here. No way, Wade. No way. We're not horse trading here, Wade. Yeah. We gotta just bite the bullet on this thing. Yeah. So, uh, what's the next step here, Jerry? They're gonna call me up and give me instructions for a drop. I'm supposed to have the money ready tomorrow. Damn it. How was everything today? Yeah, real good now. How you doing? Okay. Now, we'll get the money together. Don't worry about it, Jerry. Now, uh, do you want anyone at home with you till they call? No, I, they don't want, they were just supposed to be dealing with me. They're real clear. Yeah. You know, they said no one listening in. They'll be watching, you know. Maybe it's all bull, but like you said, Stan, they're calling the shots. Okay. And now is, uh, is Scotty going to be all right? Yeah, geez, Scotty. Yeah. I'll go talk to him. So in about two minutes, the writers have established that Stan is the only character with any shred of moral fiber. He's the one showing a genuine interest in Gene and Scotty. He's also clearly the brains of the operation. Wade is a rich man, but Stan's the one who made him that way. Wade doesn't understand how to make a deal or negotiate. Stan does. So really, even though Wade is rich, he isn't any better at making deals than Jerry. That's kind of the sense that we get from Wade's behavior. He does, however, have the good fortune of having an advisor, a good advisor in Stan, whereas Jerry doesn't have someone like that. And this is actually a setup that pays off later when Wade insists on making the ransom drop. There's also a line in this scene that is like fuel on the fire of narrative drive. See, I couldn't stop talking about narrative drive completely. <laughs> Jerry has said previously in this story that they're going to ask for $80,000, which will be split 50-50 between him and the kidnappers. But here they're talking about a million dollars, and we do eventually see that it is a million dollars that Wade coughs up. But in this scene, it raises all kinds of questions in the viewers' minds. It tells us more about Jerry than we knew previously, and it propels the plot forward. What is Jerry really after in this story? What is his true external conscious object of desire? Is it really the money? No, I don't think it is. I think what Jerry really wants on an external conscious level is to prove that he is a better deal maker than his father-in-law. So then, what this is, at its core, is a pissing match. Perfect. Thank you, Valerie. Okay, Leslie, over to you for some conventions. 
I'm studying conventions this season, and that's how I'm going to explore my disagreement with Jari about whether this is a caper. I think it's not a caper for several reasons, but chief among them is that the life value ends in justice rather than poetic justice, as we've seen in other caper stories and heists as well. Now, we're also not rooting for the criminals in Fargo, and that's a big deal. Finally, the capers usually deal with property crimes or fraud rather than murder. And this story begins as a kidnapping and fraud gone bad, but the first murders happen early enough that these crimes become what the story is about. Now, my best guess about why it looks and feels like a caper is the use of dramatic irony, where we know more than Margie does. As a result of that, we spend a lot of time with the criminals. We find out why they done it early on. The dark comedy element also contributes to the caper feel of the story. So to me, it's as if the Cohen brothers wanted to show both sides of this criminal transaction, but ultimately the focus is on the criminals being exposed and brought to justice for murder. So if it's not a caper, what is this? I would put Fargo in the Nordic or Scandinavian noir category. These crime stories are a subset of murder mystery and noir that have common features or conventions, including the setting in Scandinavia, the mood and style that is bleak, dark, and grim, and strong characters, particularly the investigator. Now, they are said to have been inspired by the dark police procedurals of Ed McBain. And they've grown in popularity thanks to Stieg Larsson's Millennium Trilogy. The category has taken root in other locations as far away as Australia. In addition to the typical conventions of a crime story, the Scandinavian noir includes the following elements. The language, and this is where I intersect with Jari's topic today. Now, writers employ plain language, avoiding metaphor, And the prose and dialogue are spare, realistic, and stripped of unnecessary words. The setting, as I mentioned earlier, these stories were developed in Scandinavian countries, but have branched out to other bleak landscapes. Again, the mood is dark, and tension arises from the brutal and often gory crimes set against a quiet and still background. These stories are most often told from the perspective of a female amateur or professional detective. So we have very strong characters. And again, in particular, we have a female investigator. The moral component of these stories includes social criticism. And specifically, we're looking at the inequality and cultural tensions and racism beneath an apparently well-integrated and socially progressive society. Now, along those lines, when we're talking about the moral component, Margie doesn't really have an internal arc. We don't see her change from the beginning to the end. In fact, one of the things that's kind of endearing about her is that she is steady. But there is great moral weight to her position and her pursuit. 
The criminals, on the other hand, follow a punitive curve. But to me, this is part of the baked-in moral component of the stories rather than a true internal genre. Now, when a story has an integral moral component, like Nordic Noir or the maturation component of a love story, I would categorize these as means of turning the plot. In other words, how we get from the life value in the beginning to the life value at the end, rather than the global genre or a subplot. To my mind, the difference between an internal plot and the means of turning the plot comes down to what the story is truly about. And I'll be testing this hypothesis in the future. Examples of Nordic noir include the following. I mentioned Stieg Larsson's Millennium Trilogy, Henning Mankel's Wallander series, Rebecca Martinson, which is a series by Asa Larsson, and those, of course, set outside of Scandinavia include stories written by Anne Cleves, the Vera Stanhope, and Shetland series. And all of these have been adapted for movies or television. Other movie and TV examples include The Bridge, which gave rise to The Tunnel and Marcella, and For Breedelsen, which gave rise to The Killing in the U.S. and Broadchurch in the U.K. Finally, Mystery Road is an example of crime noir set in Australia. So one of the things that I'm learning about conventions generally is that they are a list of ingredients for the type of story you want to tell, but they are much more than that. Our innovation of conventions for the genre and category represent one way that we share our unique perspective about the world, or a way of entering the conversation with other writers and readers of the same types of stories, focusing on the life values that the stories implicate. Awesome. Thank you, Leslie. As you were talking about the setting conventions of the Scandinavian noir stories and how they've been translated into other bleak landscapes, I couldn't help but think of those Japanese Westerns like Yojimbo that we've studied. And it's just always so fascinating to me how stories and genre can grow and evolve and yet still remain fundamentally the pattern that we recognize as story. I just love it. Okay, so now, Anne, over to you. What do you think about Fargo this week? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I'm feeling kind of stupid at this point because uh, everybody's explaining why I should have really appreciated this movie, and I didn't. I watched Fargo over the weekend for the first time since it was new in theaters in 1996. Now, I remember thinking back then that it was funny, it was weird, and it was original. And I remember the performances, you know, William H. Macy and Francis McDormand. And I remember the snow and the, the broad accents. And of course, I remember the wood chipper. And I mention all these things as proof that the story stuck with me. I sort of remembered liking it, right? But this time, with every scene that unfolded, I wondered why I ever liked it. I could barely drag myself through it this time. I really had a hard time getting through it. So I thought it would be interesting to use this fact as an opportunity to look at a question that I think every one of us as a story grid editor has been asked at some point, which is, does the story grid methodology ruin stories for you? And it's, it's a valid question. And my answer is, no, not really. So let me talk about that a little bit. The story grid knowledge never stops me from losing myself in a good story. 
In fact, it continues to amaze me how I can be reading a good novel or watching a good episode of TV and never once think about the Five Commandments or narrative drive or obligatory scenes and conventions or the sometimes I don't even notice the genre. I don't even think about it, right? It's only when the story isn't working for me that I think about why in story grid terms. And here's where that knowledge might be a little bit to blame, okay? Before Story Grid, I might soldier on through something that I wasn't really enjoying very much because critics or friends loved it. And now I don't. As soon as I notice that itch of distraction that you get when you're not enjoying something, that urge to hit pause or put the book down and do something else, then I go into Story Grid mode. Instead of just putting it down and walking away or trying too hard to like it, I go into story grid analysis mode. Any slight story enjoyment I might have been experiencing gives way to the very different kind of enjoyment of figuring out how it's not working. So in this instance with Fargo over the weekend, I was variously bored, annoyed, and disgusted. And even the beautiful cinematography, which all credit to Roger Deakins and Francis McDormand's Oscar-winning charming performance couldn't overcome that. I can use StoryGrid to guess at why. To me, the genre was unclear. And even when I finally admitted that this must be some kind of crime slash morality story, which, thank you, Leslie, you, you came to the same conclusion, I felt like it spent way too much time in the heads of the despicable criminals for me to be able to enjoy it. There was an odd feeling that I was being swayed into sympathy for at least the Steve Buscemi character, uh, Carl. I was slightly in sympathy with William H. Macy's incredibly earnest face at, at the beginning, but his character was so weak, stupid, and despicable that I hated him within five minutes. The investigation was uninteresting because we already know who the criminals were, so there was no mystery and none of the requisite sense of intrigue that I expect in a crime story. And I got to thinking about typical like serial killer TV series or something where you do see the criminal performing the crime, so you know who it is right up front. And the suspense or mystery, whatever it is, comes through from the perspective of the detective's racing against time to save the next victim, or we get intrigued in how they're going to catch up with the victim. And that didn't happen here. The investigation was kind of lame. Maybe 23 years ago, there was enough like quirky newness in this movie to gloss over its faults as a story, but that's long gone for me. Now, the fact that the sheriff or the police chief's husband is a painter seemed to have nothing to do with the story, except, as Valerie said, to convey the fact that she's the primary breadwinner. And in my reading about it, that painter and his discussions about painting to become a postage stamp seems to have been kind of a Coen Brothers insider joke. They seem to know somebody who actually paints and gets on postage stamps and they wanted him in the movie in some form. I couldn't see any reason for the sheriff to be pregnant. Sure, it shows that she's tough, but pregnant seemed a bit of a stretch. If I squint, I think I can detect something about, you know, normal life carrying on or Minnesotans of Scandinavian descent being flinty and unflappable or something. So Let's talk about target audience for a second, because it may be that I'm just not in it. Last week, Valerie described how The Spy Who Dumped Me appealed to her teenage daughter, but failed for her. She said that in her late 40s, she no longer has patience for the kind of story shenanigans that the writers got up to in that instance, and she didn't have any empathy for characters that she found unadmirable. 
So could my age be my problem with Fargo? I don't think so, and here's why. I was already 40 when I first saw it in the movie theater and apparently liked it. So I was arguably already a mature grown-up woman, and I had very wide-ranging taste in movies. So what's changed? If it's not simply that I'm not in the target audience and it's not story grid analysis paralyzing my ability to enjoy something, why did I like Fargo in 1996 and hate it in 2019? Well, the times have changed. They've changed a lot. And my ideas have changed with them. I promised the roundtable team that I would not lapse into another huge rant this week, so I'll try to keep this low-key. I no longer have much tolerance for gratuitous violence. I'm actively pursuing a study of the heroine's journey, which, among other things, is a way of telling stories whose protagonist does not solve her problems with violence. To be fair, the sheriff or the chief herself never so much as draws her gun, and she's a great character. But to make up for that mildness, Fargo presents this deeply disturbing, mindless and needless killing spree in a sort of over-the-top way that I think was supposed to be darkly funny, quote-unquote. And we're in the point of view of the killer every time. One of them kills people who annoy him. The other kills people out of crazed desperation to hang on to some money. Why wouldn't I look away in disgust? Why wouldn't I quit watching? Well, the world was a different place in 1996. That was three years before Columbine. And if we have any listeners who are not American, Columbine was the first major school shooting in the United States, and it happened in 1999. Since Columbine, there have been more than 100 school shootings in this country, killing some 250 students, teachers, and staff. And I didn't even have the heart to look up figures for gun deaths in this country as a whole. This isn't an attempt to build some sort of causal link between violence in movies and real violence in our streets. That's not my point at all. I know that's not a case that can be statistically made. My point here is simply that gross, gleeful violence feels way more distasteful to me today than it did to me 23 years ago, so much so that I can no longer discern what I might once have liked about Fargo because of it. So though this is very far from the subject of dialogue, I'd like to suggest a couple of questions for writers to ponder. One, is it possible to have exciting stakes of life and death or justice and injustice in your story without gratuitous or gleeful spree violence? I think the answer is yes, and I plan to continue exploring the question. The second question is, is it possible for any story to remain quote-unquote good when the culture that spawned the story has changed? I think the answer is probably no, but I'm also pretty sure that if Fargo had been more solidly constructed around sound story principles, which I strongly felt it wasn't, even I might have enjoyed it this past weekend and given it at least a partial pass for its stupid violence. And the third question is, will studying story grid ruin stories for you? I doubt it. I truly doubt it. What's likely to ruin the experience of revisiting an old favorite story is that the times have changed and you've changed with them. Thank you, Anne. Powerful thoughts to think about. And I really appreciate you sharing your point of view with us. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from my good friend, Mary, who was with me this week at my writing retreat. So Mary asks, once you find your character's inner essential action, are there any best practices about how often it changes? Are there specific essential actions for each genre? And is there a pattern or progression 
that the essential action tends to change to. Does say to draw a dividing line tend to go to to get someone to throw them a lifeline or to get someone on my team, for example. Hi, Mary. Great question with a very long answer that I will try and keep as brief as possible. For listeners who aren't familiar with it, essential action is a concept that StoryGrid has borrowed from the acting world. It's a method that actors use to decide how they play a line in a scene. You know that old saw where a minor actor halts production and asks, well, what's my motivation? Good acting relies on the actor knowing the motive behind what their character literally says and does. It drives their choice of subtle expressions and gestures, the kind of thing you see on film visually that doesn't involve dialogue. That motive for a character in a story comes from their object of desire, that is, their want and need. For the protagonist, that want and need are absolutely defined by your story's external and internal genres. For instance, in an action story with a worldview maturation internal genre, the protagonist wants, essentially, to thwart the villain and save the victim. That's the external action part. But they need to change their naive views before they can accomplish that. That's the internal maturation part. As writers, we can put on our movie director beret and direct our characters to speak, gesture, or make the next choice based on that object of desire. Essential action is the way they act on the desire from scene to scene. It's the subtext of what they literally say or do, and it can be boiled down to a handful of rather basic statements like, I want to get to the bottom of something, or I want to enlighten that other character to a higher understanding. Now, Leslie and I have a Fundamental Fridays post all about essential action, which we will refer you to, and we also made it into a bite-sized podcast episode, so be sure to look that up. Now, on to Mary's question. Is there a rule of thumb for how often one character changes their essential action? Is there some defined progression or pattern to it? I don't think so. Here's why. Essential action is dictated by the objects of desire, and the objects of desire are dictated by the genre. So it's safe to say that one character's essential action won't change a lot, except at major inflection points in the story basically the crisis of each act, probably. But remember, your characters aren't acting alone. They're always reacting to the other character and to circumstances. So conflict between the essential actions of two characters in a scene is, well, essential. It's helpful to remember that every villain is the hero of their own story. That other story probably has a different genre from the one your protagonist is involved in. So, for example, the schoolyard bully who creates a life-and-death action story for the 10-year-old science genius who is the protagonist might be in a performance story of her own, acting out of a desire for respect and applause. When the protagonist figures that out, she changes her strategy, and her essential action in all the scenes after that point will change. Where before she had an essential action of, say, get someone to respect my boundaries or get off my back, she's now acting out of a need to perhaps teach someone a profound lesson or maybe put them in their place in order to save other victims of the bully. As to whether there's a correlation between essential action and genre, we haven't really studied this question, so all I've got is a working hypothesis of maybe. Some of the phrases in Leslie's Essential Action Cheat Sheet, which we'll link you to, seem specific to love stories, and some have a more internal genre feel to them. 
Some would seem to fit certain archetypal roles like mentor or victim or threshold guardian or herald, but these roles can occur in just about any type of story. So take a look at that cheat sheet with your character in mind and see if a set of likely essential actions for that character leaps out at you. It should give you a solid starting point for your thinking on this subject. Thank you, Mary, for an excellent question. If you have a question about the set and setting driving dialogue or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT or better still by going to storygrid.com slash resources. Click on the Editor Roundtable podcast and leave us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Great discussion, everyone. Thank you, Anne, Jari, Leslie, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into Fargo. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to write better dialogue in your own stories. You can find out links and additional materials in the show notes on storygrid.com. And as always, if you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor, or you would like to find out more about what we do, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, please tell other writers about us and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Join us next time as Valerie leads us through her next study of narrative drive with Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 film, Rear Window, specifically as a great example of suspense. I'm really looking forward to it. So why not give it a look this week and follow along with us? Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. I love you guys. <laughs> I love you guys. We love too. you too. Love you too. Love you too.